Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Well, the time has come for the audience request of true crime. This is one of my absolute all-time favorite genres. I even fall asleep to these stories at night. So, while I am reading these, some of these stories will be solved murders and some will be unsolved murders, but regardless of the case, it is all true crime stories. Please don't forget, this coming Friday, the 19th, will be the live reading with me, and I will have a special guest with me. The live reading starts at 9 p.m., so make sure to set your reminders and come join. Come listen to the live read, come ask questions, come request stories. You know how it all goes. I look forward to interacting with each and every one of you. For the time being, down in the description below, if you enjoy what you are hearing, you can buy me a coffee as it does help the channel and myself. And if you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes, it's only $1.99 a month for now. And all that information can be found in the description below. So without further ado, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we return to the ashes, we arise a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm and prepare for these true crime cases. Disclaimer, some of these stories may not be for everyone, as they do contain graphic material. Listening discretion is advised. As soon as this introduction is over, an ad will play. I'll read the first case, another ad will play, and there will be no more ads within the video. And before I get started, I would like to say my heart goes out to all the family and friends and victims who were affected by these awful, vicious crimes. Solved Murder Case Ryan Lawrence, Case of the Father who murdered his 21-month-old daughter, Baby Maddox, before discarding her body in a creek. Ryan Lawrence is behind bars for the murder of his 21-month-old daughter, Baby Maddox, born Baby Lawrence, whose charred body was found in a creek in Syracuse, New York. On February 20th, 2016, the plane was for Lawrence to pick up his wife, Morgan, at her job. Destiny, USA, around 10 p.m. Instead, he sent her a text message that said the vehicle would be parked in the parking lot with the keys in the ignition. When her shift ended, Morgan drove to her home in the 1000 block of Valley Drive, but Lawrence and their daughter were nowhere to be found. Fearing the worst, Morgan contacted the Syracuse Police Department and reported Baby Maddox missing. The New York State Police issued an Amber Alert and a missing persons alert for the father and daughter thereafter. On the afternoon of February 22, 2016, a former employee at Thrifty Shopper on Downer Street in Baldwinsville called 911 and reported seeing Lawrence, who was 24 years old at the time. She claimed that Lawrence was buying a comforter at the store, but 
He was disguised in a black wig, hat, and sunglasses, and a bandana was covering his mouth. At first, she thought he was a vagrant, but then she recognized him from the Amber Alert. Onondaga County Sheriff Gene Conway also stated that the caller indicated that she knew him, that she had known him in the past, and she seemed to indicate she knew who he was. When officers with the Baldwinville Police Department and the Onondaga County Sheriff's Department arrived at the store, they spoke with Lawrence, who initially told him his name was Rolo Rivers. After confirming his identity, officers took Lawrence into custody, and it was then that he told detectives that baby Maddox was safe and that he had given her to Chris and Tyler, a couple who lived in another country. Lawrence later admitted that he made it up. During an interrogation that lasted more than 15 hours, Lawrence confessed to killing his daughter. You won't look at me the same way when I tell you what I did with her body, he said to the detective. Lawrence stated that moments before he murdered her, he prayed that God would send him a sign. He said, God, if I'm not meant to kill her, make her stubble. Using a wooden baseball bat, Lawrence claimed he beat baby Maddox on the head before he burned her body and the murder weapon in a fire pit at Labrador Hollow near Tully in Cortland County. For three hours, he would occasionally pour gasoline on it to keep the flames going. According to an indictment, Lawrence put his daughter's charred remains in a container. He then drove to Syracuse's inner harbor and discarded baby Maddox's remains which had been tied down to a cinder block. Detective Mark Russin went to the scene and found the fire pit as well as an aluminum can, a spray paint bottle, burned logs, and matted down snow turned to ice, according to Syracuse. Shortly before 12.30 p.m. on February 23, 2016, Syracuse police divers recovered her body from the water and an autopsy later determined that baby Maddox's cause of death was blunt force trauma. Lawrence was charged with second-degree murder. He was booked into the county jail, where he was held without bail. Onondaga County District Attorney Bill Fitzpatrick described baby Maddox as a fighter because she fought cancer and won. Just several months before her first birthday, she was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, a rare form of eye cancer. Lawrence and Morgan spent months taking her to hospitals in New York City for treatment. During that time, baby Maddox may have been getting a lot of attention, and attorneys in the case stated that Lawrence became jealous, which they believed was the motive for the killing. On March 23, 2016, Lawrence's charges were upgraded to first-degree murder, kidnapping, and tampering with physical evidence. The charges came after a psychiatrist conducted a mental health evaluation and deemed him competent to stand trial. 
Detectives announced that Morgan was not involved in Baby Maddox's kidnapping and murder. On September 15, 2016, nearly seven months after Baby Maddox's murder, Lawrence took a plea deal to avoid a life sentence without the possibility of parole. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in Onondaga County Court. At his sentencing, Lawrence, who did not have a criminal record prior to the incident, said, Although I blame no one else for my act, as the pressures to give her the perfect life built up, I also struggled against negative waves of emotions, bearing witness to the pain and sadness of many of my wife's and daughter's interactions, Lawrence added. Yet no reason and no psychological diagnosis seemed plausible to me to make me commit this act against my nature, to take the one thing I love most. Not a second goes by that I don't wish I could take back what I did, and that Maddox would still be alive. I pray she is in a better place. Lawrence was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, and as part of the plea deal, Lawrence waived his right to appeal. After Baby Maddox's death, a Facebook page was created to honor her memory and her life. Solved Murder Matthew Flugens Matthew Flugens is behind bars for the murder of six-year-old Olivia North, whose body was found in a trash bin outside a residence in Harvey, a city near New Orleans, Louisiana. According to CNN, Olivia was living with her mother and stepfather for the summer in a two-story apartment. Located in the 2900 block of Destrian Avenue in the Jefferson Parish community. Olivia, who was a first grade student at Donaldsville Elementary School, would normally live in another home in Donaldsville, about 60 miles away. On the night of July 12, 2013, the family returned home from a trip to the grocery store and went to sleep. Olivia was lying in her bed, wearing a green tank top and pink pajama bottoms, but by the next morning, she was gone. Her stepfather noticed that her toothbrush, toothpaste, and a brown and plaid queen-size blanket were also missing. But the front door was unlocked, and there was no sign of forced entry. Olivia's mother said she wouldn't have gone off on her own because she was afraid of the dark. She wouldn't just go outside. We started looking through the house and couldn't find her, so my wife got in the car and started riding around to see if she was with somebody out there we knew. And then she started calling other people, said Olivia's stepfather. When they were unable to locate her, they called the police and reported Olivia missing, which prompted a search by the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office, the FBI, the Kenner Police Department, and the New Orleans Police Department. Authorities searched nearby wooded areas, alleys, dumpsters, and garbage bins. They also went door to door, 
but there was no trace of Olivia. They did, however, discover a two by three foot pool of blood behind a building in the 2800 block of Destron Avenue. Detectives collected samples and sent them to the lab for processing. When DNA testing revealed that it was Olivia's blood, they sped up the search. Crime Stoppers Incorporated offered a $4,000 reward for information that would lead to Olivia's safe return and an arrest. When investigators searched for sex offenders who lived near Olivia's apartment, they ascertained that Flugent, who was the nephew of Olivia's stepfather, was wanted for alleged sexual battery on an 11-year-old girl. On July 15th, Colonel John Fortunato released a photo of Flugent and announced that he was a person of interest in Alita's disappearance. In the early hours of July 16th, Alita was found dead. Deputies found her decomposing body inside a green trash bin, wrapped in a blanket at an apartment complex near her home. Alita loved to sing, make people laugh, and watch Barney. She also loved to dance and had recently joined the Purple Diamonds dance team in Marrero. Police officials stated that they had previously searched the trash bins where her body was found, but they found no sign that a body had been inside. It is their conjecture that the killer placed her body in the trash after they executed their search. When the police notified Alita's mother that she had been found, she purportedly cried and said, They could have brought her back home, but they killed her and put her in a trash can. An autopsy revealed that Alita had been stabbed four times, twice in the abdomen and twice in the neck. Jefferson Parish Coroner Jerry Spinanovich said, It went through the cartilage into her spine to the bone. They were very aggressive stab wounds. Fortunato stated that he had no reason to believe that Alita's mother, stepfather, and biological father had anything to do with the child's disappearance because they took a polygraph test. On the night of July 16th, deputies arrested Flugent after receiving a tip that a man matching his description was seen walking on Victory Drive in West Wego. Flugent, who was armed with a pocket knife, was charged with one count of first-degree murder. He was booked into the county jail without incident. Officials stated that Flugent was also booked for the outstanding warrant on a charge of sexual battery. Flugent, who was 20 years old at the time, didn't get a bond. His arrest came hours after the sheriff announced that Flugent was wanted for murder. The sheriff asserted that Flugent's brother was arrested after receiving a tip that he didn't come forward about information he knew about Alita's case. He was charged with suspicion of obstructing justice. During the interrogation, Flugent told detectives that he saw Alita whom he had previously babysat outside the apartment complex in the early hours of July 13th. He didn't immediately admit to kidnapping Alita, 
nor did he reveal where he kept her body before her body was found in the trash bin. Flugents went on to say that the following day, July 14th, Olivia started to sexually assault herself after she seduced him. He said that while they were behind the Harvey apartment buildings, she spread a blanket on the ground and enticed him into having sexual intercourse with her. Afterward, Flugent said he snapped. He stabbed her multiple times with a pocket knife and she fell on the blanket where he watched her die. It was reported that Olivia's mother was stunned when she found out that her husband's nephew killed her daughter. She said, I don't understand the reason. To say I'm just going to kill your daughter, I don't understand. He later confessed to kidnapping Olivia from her home while her parents were asleep. In March 2016, Flugents took a plea deal and pleaded guilty to murdering Olivia to avoid the death penalty. As part of his plea deal, he waived his right to appeal his conviction. Flugents was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His brother received a one-year sentence after he pleaded guilty to failing to report a felony. Jacob Dismont and Michael Solid, the case of the men who killed a 15-year-old boy, Marcus Serenas, during an attempt to steal his iPad. Jacob Dismont and Michael Solid are behind bars for the killing of a 15-year-old boy, Marcus Arenas, during an attempt to steal his iPad when they saw him walking with it on a street in Las Vegas, Nevada. At around 3 p.m. on May 16, 2013, Marcos, a freshman at Bonanza High School, left his home in the Northwest Valley and began walking to a nearby Chipotle restaurant. After purchasing his meal, a burrito bowl and a burrito, he started walking home with his iPad in his hand. Relatives said he cherished it because it was a birthday gift from his father, Ivan Arenas. Ivan said he took out a payday loan to purchase the iPad because he wanted to reward him with something nice for his special day and for doing well in school. Prosecutors said Marcos wasn't acclimated to having nice things, so he carried the iPad everywhere he went and listened to music through tethered earbuds. When Marcos began walking on a sidewalk near Charleston Boulevard and Torrey Pines Drive, Dismont, who was an 18-year-old baseball player at Sierra Vista High School, approached him and tried to snatch his iPad, but the teen clutched onto it. A passerby saw Marcos screaming as he was being dragged from the sideway to a 2002 white Ford Explorer, where Dismont's friend, Solid, then 21 years old, was waiting in the driver's seat. The teen mouthed the word help to the passerby before he began wrestling with Dismont in an effort to stop him from stealing his iPad, but to no avail. Dismont took the iPad and jumped in the car. That's when Marcos repeatedly held onto the vehicle and continued reaching for his device. 
As he was doing so, Solid drove off and the teen was dragged and run over by the vehicle. Just shortly after 4 p.m., officers with the Metro Police Department arrived on the scene and found Marcos Lang injured on the street. He was rushed to the University Medical Center with multiple injuries, including a lacerated liver, a lacerated pancreas, a collapsed lung, and a skull fracture. One of Marcus's relatives stated that when they went to the hospital to see him, he had wires coming out of his mouth, bruises all over the place. He had tire marks going through his chest. Marcos ultimately died from his injuries. Just 10 months before his death, Marcos wrote out his goals for the future on white notebook paper. He wrote, I want to be ready for the world. Get ready for everything that comes my way. After high school, I want to be helping kids. I want to be able to do what I want and have kids with a nice wife. I want to have a better life than I had, and I want my kids to have a better life than I had. Prosecutors stated that Dismont tried to alter the SUV's exterior by adding flame stickers and changing the license plate. On May 18, 2013, Dismont and Solid, who were reportedly known to steal Apple products, were arrested and charged with open murder, robbery, and conspiracy to commit robbery. They were booked into the Clark County Jail. Law enforcement officers later recovered Marcus's iPad. His father said it was great news. He added that the iPad was his baby's most prized possession. It meant a lot to him, and it meant a lot to me. Three years after the killing, Dismont and Solid were sentenced. Dismont pleaded guilty to second-degree murder with a deadly weapon, robbery with a deadly weapon, and conspiracy to commit murder. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Solid went to trial. When he took the stand, he said, I never planned nor conspired with Jacob to steal or rob from anybody that day. He added that he initially lied to the police after being the driver of the SUV because Dismont was threatening him and his girlfriend after learning that Marcos died from his injuries. If I did tell the truth, he was going to harm my family, said Solid. According to his testimony, he drove off because he panicked when Dismont yelled at him to drive away. He also said he didn't realize that he hit Marcos until later. The jury found him guilty, and a judge subsequently sentenced him to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. Solid filed an appeal. His defense attorney claimed that the district court had refused to conduct a hearing on why black people were underrepresented on the jury panel. We are sitting here today and getting ready to relive this nightmare because of a technicality in Solid's case, said Marcus's father. According to court records, Solid's convictions for first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit robbery, and robbery were reversed in 2018 by the Nevada Supreme Court 
after finding a structural error during the jury's selection process. After a retrial, the jury found Saleh guilty again in May 2022, and he was sentenced to 76 years in prison, with a chance of parole after 30 years. Assault Murder Barbara Pesa, case of the former nurse who murdered her husband Timothy, then set their house on fire. Barbara Pesa is behind bars for the murder of her husband, Timothy Pesa, also known as Tim, which occurred at their home in Centerville, Iowa. Shortly after 6.30 a.m. on May 5, 2018, Barbara and Tim's children left their house, located in the 800 block of South Park Avenue, and got on the bus to attend a soccer tournament in Creston. Barbara left the house at approximately 7.08 a.m., and she sent a text message to her daughter as she was backing out of the driveway. The then 45-year-old told her that she was going to be late. She then drove to an ATM at Farmers Bank of Northern Missouri, where she withdrew money. As she began driving to Creston, her friends and neighbors tried calling her, but their calls went unanswered. Barbara later said she didn't have cell service. When she was able to receive calls, her niece called and informed her that her house was on fire. That's when she headed back to Centerville. Firefighters were already at her home, attempting to put out the fire. One of the firemen was injured. He was transported to Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines by air ambulance with non-life-threatening injuries. He was treated and released the next day. When firefighters finally extinguished the fire, they found Tim's badly burned body on the bed, where they believed the fire started. Evidence suggested that the fire was intentional. Barbara told police officials that before she left her house, she had lit a candle in their bedroom. An autopsy showed that Tim, 50, did not inhale any smoke and had died before the fire started. The medical examiner said his cause of death was a lethal dose of the anesthetic propofol. Friends and acquaintances of Barbara said that she found out that her husband had died in the fire. Her reaction was odd. They added that she didn't shed that many tears at the scene. The day after Tim's death, Barbara wrote the following message on her Facebook page. I've started with lots of tears and a very heavy heart today. All the people that have reached out and touched our lives is unbelievable. Words of thanks will never be enough. To the EMS system, you are very special people spending your lives helping others and saving. As tears are shed, I am also thinking of you. The attempt you made to save Tim and the emotions you are going through are something most don't think about. But today, I'm wishing you peace and comfort. I hope you realize that I know you tried and gave everything you had. There are no words to express my gratitude. In another post, 
She shared a photo of Tim and said he was the man who stole her heart. The police learned through an investigation that Barbara and her husband were having financial issues, where she took out a $200,000 life insurance policy on him. They had also filed for divorce. Not only that, but Tim told relatives that he thought his wife was poisoning him. Barbara worked as a nurse in the surgical department at Mercy One Centerville Medical Center. Thirteen days later, Barbara was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and first-degree arson. She was booked into the Appanoose County Jail, where she was held on a $1 million bond. During the trial, Barbara took the stand. She said, I did not kill Tim Pesa. I couldn't do that to my kids. I wouldn't do that to Tim. Barbara's defense attorney argued that Tim had injected himself with the propofol as he was a recreational user. Prosecutors said there was no evidence to prove that Tim used drugs. According to one of Barbara's friends' testimonies, during one of their outings, Barbara mentioned her husband and said she effing hated him. She added, if she wanted to get rid of somebody, she knew how. In September 2019, a Monroe County jury found Barbara guilty after deliberating for over three hours within a two-day period. Two months after a judge sentenced Barbara to life in prison plus 25 years for arson, in May 2021, Barbara filed an appeal but the Court of Appeals affirmed her conviction. An investigation still ongoing for the unsolved murder of Sterling Emanuel Settle, a mysterious murder of a 14-year-old boy whose body was found on a logging road. Sterling Emanuel Settle was 14 years old when he was murdered in Brandywine, Maryland, more than 25 years ago, and the person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. At around 4 p.m. on October 13, 1995, officers with the Charles County Sheriff's Office were dispatched to a logging road off Covington Road after receiving a 911 call about a deceased person. Upon arrival, police officials encountered the body of Sterling Emanuel Settle. It is surmised that the state medical examiner's office ruled Sterling's death a homicide, as he had been shot multiple times in his upper body area. Before his body was found, the Baynet reported that Sterling, who was a ninth grade student at Oxen Hill High School, hadn't been seen in four days. The last sighting of the teen was purportedly on the afternoon of October 9th, 1995, near his home in Oxen Hill, which is located in Prince George's County. According to the Washington Post, Sterling may have been killed on the day he went missing. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Sterling Emanuel Settle is encouraged to contact the Charles County Crime Solvers at 
1-866-411-TIPS. Solved Murder Louis Nebes Case of the man who was captured two decades after he murdered his daughter's babysitter, Thelma Stores. Louis Nebes is behind bars for the murder of his daughter's babysitter, Thelma Stores, whose body was found in Lee County, Florida. On March 2, 1998, Stores was reported missing when her friends and family could not contact her. Nearly two weeks later, on March 17th, the 35-year-old was found dead. Her fully clothed, decomposing body was discovered in a pasture used for grazing cows, which was located off Lexington Avenue near Tice Street. She was identified through fingerprints that were taken three months earlier when she was arrested twice for prostitution, according to Fox News. Evidence suggested that she had been killed somewhere else before her body was discarded at that location. Police said she appeared to be lifted on a sheet that could have been used as a gurney and transported from some type of vehicle to where she rested. Prior to her death, authorities claimed that she traveled down the wrong path as she was apparently addicted to crack cocaine and couldn't hold a steady job. Authorities said her body was transported to the University of Florida in Gainesville, where an anthropologist would determine her exact cause of death. According to the news press, Storrs died from wounds to the head. Her case went unsolved for 21 years until April 2019, when officers with the Lee County Sheriff's Office received a tip. It was from a woman who claimed that her father admitted to her that he had killed Stores. Stores had been babysitting his daughter since the age of five. Authorities said they used the controlled call technique when the defendant and his now adult daughter were on the phone. That's when Neves of Fort Myers confessed to the murder. Police arrested Neves and he was booked into the Lee County Jail, where he was held on a $750,000 bond, according to Wink News. He was arrested and charged with homicide. Neves later pleaded guilty to one count of manslaughter with a weapon, which is considered a first-degree felony. While in court, the victim's sister said, the grief and sorrow I feel and felt of losing my sister. There are no words that can comprehend or say. In February 2021, Neves was sentenced to 15 years in prison, and after he is released, he will be placed on probation for 15 years. Relatives stated that Neves' sentence doesn't bring back their sister, whom they miss but they are happy that this has finally been solved. Sheriff Carmine Marcino said, this arrest also serves as a reminder that it is never too late to come forward with information. Cold-blooded killers will not walk free in Lee County.
the ongoing unsolved case of Glenn Smith, mysterious murder of a 26-year-old man whose body was found in the Hudson River. Glenn Smith was 26 years old at the time he was murdered, and his body was found in a river near Beacon, New York. Despite the efforts of local authorities, the person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. On January 23, 1969, Smith was seen at the Three Roses Bar in Harlem. Clad in purple corduroy pants, black shoes, a beige shirt, and a blue leather jacket, according to the New York State Police. That was the last time he was seen alive. Nearly three months later, on April 20, 1969, Glenn Smith was found dead in the Hudson River. Information about the cause of death is unavailable as are the circumstances leading up to his disappearance. However, detectives are supposedly investigating Smith's death as a homicide. It was reported that shortly before his death, Smith moved to New York City from Savannah, Georgia, where he was possibly involved in the drug trade at both locations. He was born on January 16, 1943, had black hair and brown eyes, weighed 175 pounds, and stood 5 foot 8 inches tall. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Glenn Smith is encouraged to contact the New York State Police at 845-298-0952 or send an email to N-Y-S-V-I-C-A-P at troopers.ny.gov. Solved Murder Case Sean Rashad Hill Case of the Man Who Murdered His Mother Barbara Jean Gray Sean Rashad Hill is behind bars for murdering his mother, Barbara Jean Gray, at the home they shared in Henrico County, Virginia. On the morning of October 14, 2017, officers were sent to Stonewall Manor Apartments in the 1500 block of Americana Drive after receiving a 911 call from Hill. He told dispatch that he went to buy pizza and beer at a nearby food lion, and when he returned, he found his mother unresponsive on the floor, according to Richard Times' dispatch. The 911 operator gave Hill instructions on how to perform CPR on his mother until paramedics arrived. But according to the deputy Commonwealth attorney for Enrico, Hill never executed the emergency procedure. When emergency first responders made it to the apartment, they saw that Gray had been badly beaten, and they also noticed blood in the hallway. Paramedics rushed the 61-year-old to an area hospital, but she was pronounced dead shortly after arrival. 
An autopsy showed that Gray died of blunt force trauma. A photo of the victim is not available. Detectives arrested Hill around 6 p.m., the same day after evidence suggested he attacked his mother in the home on October 12, 2017. They also concluded that after he beat her and struck her with a boombox, he smothered her to death. He was charged with second-degree murder and booked into the Henrico County Jail, where he was held without bond. An attorney in the case stated that it's unspeakable what happened in that house over 48 hours. She gave him life, and he decided to take hers. Hill, who did not have a criminal record at the time, initially denied having anything to do with Gray's death. During the trial, an attorney told the court that Hill used his cell phone to record his mother's badly beaten and bruised body as she lay incoherently on the floor. At around 5.08 a.m. on October 14, 2017, a call was made from Gray's phone to Hill. Investigators believe Hill took his mother's phone and called himself. They said she could have already been dead at the time the call was placed. A next-door neighbor testified that they saw multiple fights between the mother and son, and they believe it was over money. Hill shut down those claims by saying he did not have any issues with his mother. In 2008, Hill was found guilty of murdering his mother. Judge Lee A. Harris Jr., who called Gray's death a vicious murder, sentenced Hill to 25 years in prison. The ongoing case of an unsolved murder, Esco Hunter, mysterious murder of a 27-year-old man whose body was found near railroad tracks. Esco Hunter was 27 years old at the time he was murdered. His body was discovered near railroad tracks in Sarasota County, Florida, more than 20 years ago. Despite the efforts of local authorities, the person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. Hunter, who used several aliases, including Jeffrey Scott, Eric Jetson, and Aaron Jackson, was from the Miami-Dade area, but he often went to nightclubs in Sarasota. As he was involved in the rap industry, he went by the name Lay Low. It was reported that he was the owner of two vehicles at the time, a maroon 1999 Ford van and a white 1992 Ford Mustang convertible. On December 1, 1999, his van was discovered torched on a dead-end street, Orange Avenue, which is near Myrtle Street, according to the Bradenton Herald. Investigators said the vehicle was deliberately set on fire. That same day, Hunter's body was found in a wooded area abutted railroad tracks at Central Avenue and 44th Street, not far from where his vehicle was found. 
although the medical examiner's office ruled the manner of Esco Hunter's death a homicide. Information about the cause of death is unavailable. At the time of his death, Hunter was six feet tall and weighed 160 pounds. He had black hair and brown eyes and had the letters SCO tattooed on his left shoulder. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Esco Hunter is encouraged to contact the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office Criminal Investigations at 941-861-4900. The Solved Murder Case Louise Reese Case of the Killer Grandma who fatally shot her husband David then murdered Pamela Hutchinson to steal her identity. Louise Reese was convicted of fatally shooting her husband, David Reese, in Blooming Prairie, Minnesota, before she fled to Fort Myers Beach, Florida, where she murdered Pamela Hutchinson to assume her identity. On March 23, 2018, Blooming Prairie deputies were sent to the couple's home to conduct a welfare check on David. His business partner said he hadn't seen the 54-year-old in 16 days. David's friends were also concerned after they received text messages from him on March 12th that seemed different. The messages included punctuation, which is uncommon for David Reese, said one of his friends. His employees told authorities they were suspicious because... David typically responds to messages and frequently is in contact with the employees. But Lewis told them not to contact him because he was sick, and on another occasion, she told them that he wasn't available because he was on a fishing trip, according to Valley News Live. When officers entered the home, they found David dead on the bathroom floor, and he was covered with towels. David was shot multiple times with a 22 caliber gun, according to an autopsy performed by the Southern Minnesota Regional Medical Examiner's Office. Investigators initially thought Louise was a missing person, but the daycare worker with five grandchildren soon became a person of interest. A background investigation revealed that Louise transferred $10,000 from David's business account to his personal account. She then sent the money, including an additional $1,000, to herself by forging his signature on three checks. Authorities said the transaction was illegal because she didn't have check-writing authority on either of the accounts. They also stated that she may have had a gambling addiction, which is why she killed her husband of 26 years, stole his money, and fled the state in a white 2005 Cadillac Escalade. Authorities said surveillance footage from various states captured Louise as she traveled to South Florida before she befriended Hutchinson. Meanwhile, the Dodge County Sheriff's Office issued a warrant for her arrest in connection with her husband's murder. 
she was also suspected of theft and forgery. When law enforcement turned to the public for help, various media outlets dubbed her the killer grandma and the fugitive granny. Also, a $6,000 reward was offered for information that would lead to her arrest. While on the run, Louise caught another charge after police officials said she was linked to Hutchinson's murder, whose body was found at a condo resort in Fort Myers Beach. On April 3, 2018, Hutchinson, 59, of Virginia Beach, Virginia, checked in at the 7th floor Marina Villages, where she had planned to stay for two nights. Hutchinson was in town for a funeral. Before her checkout time, Hutchinson asked the manager to extend her stay, but when the manager noticed they hadn't seen or heard from her after that, she went to her room. As the manager approached the door, she noticed a foul smell. She used her keycard and let herself inside the room. She then realized the smell was emanating from the bathroom, but the door was closed. When she tried to open it, she said she heard a thud and immediately freaked out. The manager ran out of the room and notified the first three tenants she saw. She asked them to go inside the bathroom and check it out. They agreed. When they looked in the bathroom, they saw Hutchinson's body on the floor. She had been shot twice, once in the shoulder and once in the left flank area, according to an autopsy. An investigation revealed that Lewis shot Hutchinson, then stole her ID and credit cards. She also withdrew $5,000 from her bank account. Authorities said she fled to the Cushada Casino Resort in Kinder, Louisiana, in Hutchinson's car, a white 2005 Acura TL. On April 19, 2018, Lewis was arrested by U.S. Marshal Service with the assistance of South Padre Island Police at a restaurant in a resort town, South Padre Island, Texas. When they searched her hotel, they found the murder weapon. She was extradited to the Lee County Jail to face multiple charges, including murder, grand theft, grand theft auto, and identity theft. In December 2019, Lewis avoided the death penalty. She took a plea deal that required her to plead guilty to murdering Hutchinson. After pleading guilty, she received a life sentence. Louise admitted that she killed Hutchinson because she thought they looked alike and she wanted to steal her identity. Then, in July 2020, Louise was extradited to Steele County Detention Center in Minneapolis, where she was charged with the first-degree murder of her husband. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. Ongoing unsolved murder case, Samantha Zazay. Mystery surrounds drive-by shooting that killed 12-year-old girl. 
Samantha Zeze was 12 years old when she died several days after being shot in a drive-by shooting at her home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And despite the efforts of local authorities, her murder remained unsolved. Shortly after 2 a.m. on October 28, 1997, Samantha and her relatives were asleep when a vehicle drove by their home in the 5200 block of North Kenosha Avenue and opened fire. An occupant of the vehicle shot at least 13 rounds from an assault rifle before speeding off, according to the El Popa Daily Herald. Samantha was shot in the head and had to undergo surgery. Her then 39-year-old mother was shot in the leg and was listed in fair condition at an area hospital. Two days later, at 8.45 a.m. on October 30, 1997, Samantha was pronounced dead at St. Francis Hospital. Investigators stated the sixth grader was not the intended target. They believed the gunman was a gang member who wanted to kill her brother who was no longer living in the home. An officer stated that investigators believed that the gunman shot up the house with no regard for who was in it. There were eight people in the home at the time of the shooting. On the day of the incident, Tulsa police officials arrested a 27-year-old man after a teenager witness identified him as the drive-by shooter. He was charged with first-degree murder and shooting with the intent to kill, along with a slew of other charges. Four months later, the suspect was released from jail after posting $102,500 in bail money. His charges were dropped in December 1998 after police officials said the witness wasn't credible because he gave various accounts of what happened during the shooting. The Daily Oklahoman reported. A defense attorney stated that had the case gone to trial, his client had two alibi witnesses who could prove he was miles away when the shooting occurred. Find a grave shows that Samantha was buried in the Floral Haven Memorial Gardens in Tulsa County, Oklahoma. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Samantha Zeze is encouraged to contact the Tulsa Police Department Cold Case Unit via email tpdcoldcasehomicide at cityoftulsa.org. Solved murder case. Colonel Thompson and his wife Yolanda love triangle murder of a 16-year-old high school cheerleader, Marisha Jetter, whose body was found in a river. Colonel Thompson and his wife Yolanda were convicted of murdering 16-year-old Marisha Jetter, a former girlfriend whose body was found in a river in Chester County, South Carolina. At around 9.30 on January 3, 2008, Marisha told her father, who was a Union County school board member at the time, that she was going to get some food from McDonald's restaurant nearby and she would be back. 
The Union County High School cheerleader kissed him goodbye, walked out of the house, got into her bright pink 1994 Toyota Celica, a present she received for her 16th birthday and drove off. When an hour went by and she hadn't returned, her father called her cell phone, but he didn't get an answer. That's when he got into his car and drove through the town of Union in an attempt to find her. But he was unsuccessful, according to ABC News. At around 1 a.m. the following morning, he reported Marisha missing and an Amber Alert was issued. Detectives considered the possibility of Marisha running away from home, but her family debunked those claims. They said she didn't have a reason to leave a place where she was popular and well-loved by the people in the community. Relatives then thought of Marisha's then 20-year-old ex-boyfriend, Pernell, who her father did not approve of. He thought they had ended their relationship as Pernell had gone on to have a baby and marry a woman named Yolanda in the summer of 2007. But just a few days before Marisha went missing, her father stated that Pernell and his wife went to their home and admitted to still seeing his daughter. When detectives questioned Pernell, a junior football player at Wingate University in North Carolina at the time, about Marisha's disappearance, he said he didn't know anything about it. In the afternoon of January 5th, 2008, the search for Marisha came to a poignant end. Her partially clothed body was found in a river, about 10 to 15 minutes outside of town. According to the Gaffney Ledger, a Spartanburg art student was taking pictures of the Broad River, which is located in Lockhart, when she noticed something peculiar in the water. Using the zoom feature on her camera, she was able to see that the object was a body, and she immediately notified the police. Marisha's body was recovered from the water and sent to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy, which revealed she died from multiple stab wounds. On January 6, 2008, detectives were notified that the South Carolina Highway Patrol had located Marisha's vehicle the night before. It was found burning on the side of the roadway. When they extinguished the fire, the vehicle was so badly burned that they weren't immediately able to identify who it was registered to. After detectives learned that Marisha's vehicle had been torched, their focus was once again on Pernell. During their previous interview with the athlete, they noticed he had burn scars on his face and hands. Although he told them that he got burned while cooking at his grandmother's house, they were still suspicious. Pernell returned to the police station for the second time, and again, detectives noticed something. His shoes. He was wearing a Nike Air Force One shoe, which was the same type of shoe that left an impression at the crime scene. When detectives presented him with all of their findings, Pernell confessed to killing Marisha. 
He claimed that when his wife found out he was having an affair with Marisha, she was upset. Yolanda then asked him to prove that he loved her. That's when he sent Marisha a text message, asking her to meet him in the parking lot behind the YMCA. Colonel said he told Marisha he wanted her to return his jacket, and she obliged. When she arrived and got out of the vehicle, the Index Journal reported that he then began stabbing her in the neck more than 30 times while Yolanda held her down. Afterward, the couple put Marisha's body in the trunk of her car and drove to Lockhart, where they dumped her body in the river and set her car on fire in another county. Colonel and Yolanda, who did not have a criminal record before the incident, were arrested and booked into the Union County Jail on charges of murder, kidnapping, and criminal conspiracy. A spokesperson at Wingate University stated that after Colonel's arrest, the school placed him on suspension. According to the Greenville News, the university's football coach stated that Everyone is in shock at this point. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the families of the victim. On March 6, 2009, Yolanda pleaded guilty to the charges and agreed to testify against her husband after learning that prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. Pernell initially entered a not guilty plea but later pleaded guilty to the charges to avoid being put to death. He then apologized to the victim's family. Pernell said, I know that she's in heaven. I know she's happy, and that's one thing giving me peace. I pray, I hope, for forgiveness, but I know I don't need it. I receive forgiveness from her. Marisha's father told him, You're going straight to hell and there ain't nothing nobody can do to help you. Before sentencing, Yolanda became emotional when she asked Marisha's family to forgive her. She told them that she was not an awful person, but I did an awful thing. The victim's family reportedly called Yolanda a demon who stole my baby's life. According to the Herald, Yolanda's attorney asked the judge for mercy, claiming that she had been unable to have a healthy relationship with a man after suffering sexual abuse as a child. This was a brutal killing and kidnapping, the judge told her. I see no reason to treat you differently from Mr. Thompson. The judge sentenced Pernell and Yolanda to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Marisha Jetter. The continued unsolved case of Betty Joyce Brown, mysterious murder of a 27-year-old woman whose charred remains were found in a wooded area. Betty Joyce Brown, also known by her married name Betty Simmons, was 29 years old when she was found dead in a wooded area in South Knox County, Tennessee. The coroner ruled her death as a homicide, but more than three decades have passed and her killer is still at large. 
on July 13, 1985. Brown was busy moving into her new apartment on Tarleton Avenue when she decided to go to a grocery store nearby. But after buying a hot dog, she vanished. Seven days later, the mother of three was found dead. According to the Knoxville News Centennial, on the afternoon of July 20th, 1985, a resident was walking to his mailbox when he noticed a foul odor. When he searched the wooded area near his driveway, located off Maloney Road, he found the charred remains of a female lying on top of a bed of charcoal. Before finding her body, the resident told detectives that he had found bloodstains and a pair of undergarments in his driveway nearly a week earlier. Four days later, the body was identified through dental records as that of Brown, who died from a stab wound to the chest. An autopsy showed that Brown had been deceased for about a week before she was found. It was reported that the Austin East High School graduate was stabbed with a five-inch knife before she was set on fire. The Knox County Chief of Detectives stated that Brown had a long arrest record for prostitution, drugs, larceny, etc. She would often work as a prostitute on Magnolia Avenue, which led investigators to believe that she may have accepted a ride from someone she didn't know. Investigators said she may have been killed somewhere in the area between midnight and 1 a.m. on July 14, 1985, before the perpetrator obscured her body in the woods. One of Brown's relatives told the media in 1985 that, even though she was a prostitute, she didn't deserve to die like that. She did what she did to make a living, but she never did anybody any harm. Anyone with any information regarding the unsolved murder of Betty Joyce Brown is encouraged to contact the Knox County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit at 865-215-3520 or 865-215-3590. And that, dear listeners, is the end of these True Crime Stories, Volume 2. My heart goes out to all the families and victims of these cases. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope that you have enjoyed these stories. Until next time, I'll read to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.